sharp this morning. You look good. I like it. I like it. Man, I feel a little underdressed or something. I feel. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you. God bless you. Glad, uh, glad you're with us. You guys ready to be in God's Word and have your mind washed with the Word of God? You guys ready? Man, I love to be under the Word of God studying God's Word. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. One of the ushers will bring you a Bible. Anybody need a Bible here? Good? All right. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be picking up where we were in uh, verse 25 and on, but maybe we'll start back in verse 22 in case there is a wife that was not here last week. Ladies are like, great, we timed this perfectly. Got to go. No, we'll start there, but um, we'll get a running start in context as we go through. You know, these, these passages are incredibly important. Remember, Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus. He's dealing with the issues of application of how do we live out the Christian faith? What are we doing? He took the first three chapters to give, you know, the theology and the underpinning and the premise of our, our walk with Christ. And now he's giving us chapter four, five, and six to understand how do we live this out? How do we live out the Christian life? And I'm so grateful these chapters are in here, and especially chapters on marriage. You know, yesterday I, uh, I had the privilege I was able to take our son. He ended up going back uh, to school up in Syracuse. And so we drove him back up. It's about a four-hour drive. And on the way back, we, um, we started talking about this very passage. I was telling first service, I said, it took us about two to three hours as we were talking about this passage. I know I'm going to have an hour with you. I don't want to frighten you, but... <laughs> Uh, some of you are like, wow, we're going to go deep. No, it's just amazing to have that time of reflection and examination with the Lord and your spouse. And, you know, it was just Lisa and I were driving back, and we just started running our marriage through the grid of Scripture. How are we doing? How are we lining up according to what God has for our marriage? Are we receiving the blessings that Jesus wants to give us? Are we living that way? Are we walking in it? And, and I must say... Um, there's areas where we looked at it and we got, you know, Lord, we want more of you, less of us. We want you to be at the center of our marriage. And it was really beautiful. So I don't know if you're like me in that, you know, you know God has a very beautiful design for marriage. And there's responsibilities in offices both husbands and wives have. And God is calling us that. And for our young people that maybe are not married, that are looking to marriage. You know, what is God calling you to? If he's giving you the gift of marriage, right, what is he calling you to? What, as a, as a little boy, little young man, a man, what are you, what does that look like when you go to one day look for the bride that Jesus is going to bring into your life? Or, or wives or young ladies, I should say, when you go to look at what it is to find a godly husband, these are great exhortations for us to understand what we should be looking for in the context of a biblical marriage. So let's bow our heads, let's pray. She agrees completely. We're going to bow and we're going to pray. Father, we come right before you. We thank you, Jesus, that um, you're here with us. This is your word. You've anointed it, Lord. We pray you go before us this morning here, Jesus Christ, and that you would, you would show us in these passages, Lord God, what you have for us and how we're to live. And, and Lord, not only that, but, but Jesus, that your spirit would be filling this place, that we would all submit here, Lord, back in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. May we do that this morning, that we have eyes to see and ears to hear. 
Speak to our hearts beautifully, God. I pray for our married couples here this morning. As you prick hearts, Lord, let it not be with bitterness or contention. Let it be with joy that you are describing and drawing unity in marriage. And God, for those that are widowed or single, God, I I know you're speaking to their hearts because, Lord, they're wed to you, Jesus, to the better man, the God man. So, God, we pray and ask that you would go before them as well and that, Lord, you would give them passage to understand all that you've promised to the bride of Christ, to them and from the bridegroom, you, Jesus, that we would live out our marriages in the way you have designed them, again, before the foundations of the world. We pray and we ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed, amen. You know, as we look at the next few passages we're going to read here, it's interesting. The Lord has given us three passages for the ladies, three verses in particular, right? And some argue whether it's seven or nine verses for the men. You know, maybe we need a little bit more uh, work, guys. How about that, husbands? Or maybe in context, what God is trying to do is teach us the foundation of what a true godly marriage looks like. And that if it would have took 20 verses... Would it have been enough? Because there's so many today that are are living marriages according to the world's standards and never God's. And it wasn't by design. It wasn't though they they looked to do that. It's maybe they didn't grow up in a Christian home. And even if they did grow up in a Christian home, maybe the Bible wasn't taught in that home. Maybe there wasn't pastors in the home. Either case, we find ourselves in this beautiful place this morning. Because men, I I firmly believe Pastor Paul, the Holy Spirit, wants to speak to our hearts and help us to understand how it all truly begins with love. And not just any kind of love, but an agape love, a true self-sacrificing, unconditional love. Because God's daughters, born-again believers in Christ, ladies that are knit to Jesus and Jesus to them, deserve it, nothing less, and nor will God tolerate anything less from his design for his daughters. So let us draw our attention back to verse 21. It all began this way, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. That, that's, we, that's what we see here of how it begins in verse 21 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. And then we read last week, wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Some of you cringed when I said submission. I saw some wives, little ticks were happening. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let lives be to their own husbands and everything. And if Paul had stopped there, many ladies would be fearing right now because of lack of spiritual guidance and wisdom. What does that mean? You mean submit in everything? And, and guys, you know, husbands, you get to do whatever you want, say whatever you want, it, it not fulfill your godly role, your office that the Lord has called you to? Because every man is like, yes, submission is good. Until Christ lays that foundation and says it begins with you, men. And all of a sudden, wait a minute. Yeah, he's talking to us. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. 
that word love circled in your Bible. It's agape. It's agape. Just as Christ, he qualified it. He didn't say love them the way you think they should be loved. He says, no, you love them just as Christ loves them. Wow. Wow. Husbands, are we starting to get the picture? God's perfection in marriage and desire? Wow. I, I think this is, is, is telling here as he also loved the church and gave himself for her. We're going to spend a few minutes on this verse because there's so much we need to unpack. God has put so much in this. The simple command to Christian husbands begins with love your wife. And yet, men, we need to examine our hearts in Scripture. How many of us are actually living this out, truly living this out as Christ has commanded? These are required courses. This is not, ele- is not an elective. This is not extra credit. This is a required course. Paul's words here give a foundation to his previous words that he gave to the wives. Wives, you are to submit. But that's because the expectation is that the husband is drawing you to him and not away from him, away from Jesus. So if Paul had only given that exhortation to wives and he didn't give the counter-exhortation to the husbands, what do you think you'd have? You'd still have disunity. I draw you back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3. God created all things very good, didn't he? Before sin ever entered into humanity. Marriage was given by God. He took a rib from the side of Adam Eve created, brought to Adam, ordained and sanctified and officiated the very first marriage. And then God, he allowed this beautiful marriage to flourish. And then all of a sudden, we find failure. What do you mean, Pastor, failure? Well, in two particular areas. Everybody goes to Eve and says, eat of the fruit. Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's read the scriptures very carefully. Let's look at the Hebrew. What does he go back and say in Genesis 2, and as he describes it up to 3? What, what was the problem? Adam, according to a godly marriage, was to be what? As we're going to read it, and we read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Adam was to be the covering, wasn't he? the protection, the accountability, the responsibility. Men, I want you to think for a minute. You have some guy or beast, Satan himself, walking up to your wife, wanting to have a word with her. What are you thinking? What are you doing? I know most of you are going to say, uh-uh, I'm getting right in between that conversation some covering and protection is needed. We're not told in Scripture. Maybe when we see Adam in heaven, we can ask him, where were you during those beginning moments when your wife was brought to or encountered Satan himself, Lucifer, as he began to spew lies and deceive and sow disunity and division in the heart 
we read it's not till later that she believes these lies and that Adam then is then what? Brought, he comes over to her and it's not, hey, where have you been, honey? This guy or this beast or Lucifer, is the, he's, he's talking to me about things that are un, you know, unbiblical or anti-scriptural or however you want to say it, un, un, you know, not according to God's commandments and statutes. But she says, hey, we can eat this. What do you think? No, no, she doesn't say that. What does she say as the helpmate? She said, here, have some. We see another failure, another breakdown. The wife is the helpmate, one to hear from God, to be that check and balance, both husband and wife, to receive and say, no, honey, is this of the Lord? Have you prayed about this? That wasn't echoed. And so he partake and she partake of the fruit, only to have sin then enter in. And Satan's work in the garden was done that day. And he departed. He didn't need to stay any longer. He did what he came to accomplish. And it's the very same thing he's doing in houses all over America, all over Harrisburg and the shores here, and all over the, really the world in general. And that is he's creating division in the home. And that's why we're going to spend some moments talking about these things, because he's absolutely up to his old tricks. There's nothing new under the sun. And he goes in, and he divides, and he conquers, and he does it with lies and deceit and deception. And God's people are to hold on to God's truth and promises and expect God's very best. So he begins, understanding the context of that. And maybe I should even mention one more thing. What was the response to the curse by God? First of all, he went right to Adam, didn't he? Adam, what happened? Why? Because Adam's the covering. Much is given, much is required. There's a responsibility there. Adam, what have you done? Adam shirks his responsibility and says what? It's Eve. It's the woman you gave me. Does that sound like a covering? Does that sound like a selfless husband response? Or does that sound like blame shifting to you? Hmm. Do you see why I say there's failures on both parts, multiple places as we read that account? And then what happens thereafter? God pronounces the curse. The woman, you know, labor and pain, because that's one of the things that God has called a woman, only a female can do, and that's to bring forth child and childbirth. And for the male, what was it? That you will work, because that was what he was called to do, to to work and to cover and to be there. You'll do this, but by the way, you will now have sweat on your brow. You will toil as you do these things, because I gave you perfection where there was no sin, and you were so willing to compromise that. You will never forget that again, even though Jesus Christ had already come, because he was going to be that foundation. We see it, right? I think of uh, Theophanes. In scripture, before the coming of Jesus Christ physically as man on earth, right? Born in a major. So we see Christ throughout all our scriptures. It's not that God wasn't willing, but he was constantly reminding them, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to the flesh pots. Don't settle for the sin of this world. I have something so much better for you, my daughters and my husband's. That's what he was saying, and we have a mental picture and a constant reminder of it because sometimes we can have memory lapses. 
So we see this found out. And then what does he do? He says, Eve, your head will be towards your husband. If you read the Hebrew in context, what he's saying? He's saying it's a juxtaposition. You have to turn, Eve. What does that mean Eve's head was doing what? It was turning the opposite way. And that there needs to be a... And then Adam, you're going to not shirk your responsibility of the covering. And you will remember that. That you are to cover it and to protect, and to love, and to feed, and to cherish. You'll never forget that, Adam, because that sweat, when it drips off your brow, will be a constant reminder. And today, as men, we too remember that. Once was once was perfect, and now we remember what Christ has reconciled through the blood and through the gift of grace, a gift we never could have deserved. And so he says, husbands love your wives. Paul, again, foundation to the words that he had given. Wives are to submit to their own husbands, but this verse makes it clear that husbands are to agape, love unconditionally their wives. Now, there's four different words that we see in the Greek that can be translated here, right? It's not a lack of syntax or grammar. God's not grammatically challenged. He had choices. He could have used any of the four Greek words, but he chose the word agape or agapo. Okay. When you think of a married couple, what are some of the words you might have thought of? Maybe the Greek word eros, right? Eros in context, a husband and a wife. Uh, you know, I don't think that would be, it's an erotic love. I mean, isn't that the world, what it's painting now? I mean, I, I, it's terrible in, Pen, in Pennsylvania here. I, I saw a sign uh, not too long that says it's got two rings and it spells out oops. Well, our marriage isn't good. It's not erotic. It's not like what we see on the videos or it's not what we see on the TV or it's not what the world presents. You mean marriages work? But if you believe the fairy tale of Eros, then you're going to believe that love is driven by desire. By desire. But that's not the word God used. That's not the word that Jesus used, that he gave the revelation to Paul. What about story or storgy, depending on how you want to pronounce it in the Greek? Second word for love, it refers to a family love. The kind of love between a parent and a child. Okay? between family members in general. Um, it's a love driven by blood. I, I mentioned in first service, some of you know uh, Pastor Steve and Tammy. Uh, they welcomed their new granddaughter into the world a few days back. Okay. Happy and healthy. Thank you, Jesus. But nobody had to go to Pastor Steve or Tammy and go, look at this baby. Are you going to love this baby? Oh, no. The very minute that that child came forth, there was immediate love beyond anything. Parents, what wouldn't you do for your child? You'd lay down your life in a heartbeat for your loved one. Why? What is the common connection? Blood. What is the connection that Jesus Christ has shown us? The blood of Christ the blood of the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world, the blood of Jesus that he paid for our sins, our transgressions. 
as a propitiation, a substitute for you and I. By his blood, we have been healed, and we are part of his family, sons and daughters, no longer creation of God, but children of God. We're blood-bought. We're all related here because we're in the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, the enemy would love to create division in the church, find the differences of each one of us and try to exploit those. Or we can focus on the unity of what draws us together, and that's Christ Jesus, because that's all that's going to survive eternity. The differences won't. The, div the differences only last a lifetime, but the unity is eternal, and it's everlasting. Look at the rioting going on. Look at all the things going on now over the division. It's a spiritual condition. It's a failure of the church not to call it what it is. Disunity never brings harmony. Unity in Christ and absolute truth draws one into the understanding of who we are in Jesus and therefore how do we respond to others. Are you willing to lay down your life for a brother or a sister? But that's not popular. People don't want to talk about that today. What about phileo? What about that kind of love? That's another word, right? Philadelphia. Speaks of a brotherly love, a friendship, an affection, right? A love of a, a deep partnership. Might be described as the highest love by which a man without God's help is capable of. It's fondness or love driven by common interests or affection. I phileo you, you phileo me. Remember Jesus Christ talking to Peter? I agape you, Peter. I phileo you, Lord. Many times at the end of every, well, most services, I look at you and I say, I agape love you. That's what I'm saying in my heart. And some of you might say, well, I phileo you, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. But God, agape here is the fourth word. I want you to think about this for a minute. Eros, storge, or store, depending on how you want to pronounce it, phileo, all of these loves, these other words we can use for love, are all based on one thing in particular, feelings. Feelings. But the word God used here for agape, the Greek word for love, is not based on feelings at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ, when he was going to the cross, probably didn't feel like it. Well, what are you saying? That's blasphemy, Pastor. Is it really? Lord, Father, I come before you. If it be your will, let this cup pass from my hand, but not my will, your will be done. Not my words, the words of Jesus Christ. Let this cup pass from my hand, but not my will, your will. Was God not echoing, one, his submission to the Father, two, his desire that if there was another way, but ultimately a self-sacrifice, willing to do whatever the Father desired. And this was determined, right? Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, chapter 7. This was determined before the foundations of the world. This wasn't an afterthought. That's real love. And that's the love Christ Jesus has for you and I. So it's not based on a feeling. Guys, you might wake up, I don't feel like it. I don't, I don't, she doesn't deserve my love that way, you know, or what? Jesus isn't talking about any of that. 
He's not asking you how you feel. He's not asking me how I feel. He didn't say, do you feel like it today? I'm so grateful he didn't use one of the other three words that are based on feeling and emotion that way. No, he used a word that is all about selfless love. That's about sacrifice. That's about laying your life down for the one whom God has called you and knit you as one flesh. That's what he's saying here. It should be preached from the mountaintops. Not just heard when we're in the valleys. You see, that kind of love, agape love, right? It's, it's a matter of mind. It's a matter of heart. Because we choose to love even when it's undeserving. It's not based on whether we deserve or they deserve. No. It's a love that never changes. And this is the love Jesus has for us. It's a self-giving and sacrificial love. It's a love without demanding or expecting some type of reciprocation. Friends, it's a love that's blind to rejection. That's what Christ modeled for us. That's the bar. And anything less than that is not of the Lord. And that's why I tell our young people, young ladies, why are you settling? God has the very best for you. Why would you ever settle for something made of man when you can have something that's got the fingerprints and essence of God on it? A godly marriage. And men, the same way. You want a wife that loves Jesus more than she loves you. And women, you want a guy that loves Jesus more than he loves. Because if not, you will always be second or third fiddle to an emotion or a whim. But when Jesus is first, you'll be right there. And that's what we're going to read. You're going to be right in unity with that. Because it's God's commandments, statutes, and his judgments. And they are perfect. Just look what man has done humanity's done with marriage, the manipulation, the things that we have twisted it. I mean, the church has the divorce rate equal to the world. Just look at these things. We can read this passage and think Paul is saying, husbands, be kind to your wives, or husbands, be nice to your wives. Maybe, maybe that's what he's saying. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He, he's not prefacing it with an emotion or a limitation. No, he's saying, husbands, die to yourself for your wife. That's what he's saying right here. Husbands, continue to practice self-denial for the sake of your wives. Why? Please look at the passage in verse 25 again. Just as Christ also loved the church. Jesus' attitude toward the church is a pattern for the Christian husband and the wife. The way the husband is to love his wife. A marriage where love is withheld, or worse, used as a weapon, is a loveless marriage that does not please God. 
The husband is to lead unconditional love. It's not, again, a reciprocation. It's not about, well, I feel loved, and therefore I'll give it. No. It's a sacrificial love, and that is the model Christ used. Men, husbands, we are to lead that model, regardless of what our wife does or does not do. It's not conditional based on her feelings, on her actions. It is commanded by Jesus Christ. You either obey or you don't. You are either in the will of God or you are found wanting. And ladies, accept accept nothing else. Accept nothing else. Why? Because this is the very love that was paraded for you and I. As our Lord and Savior was taken, spat upon, beaten, and brought to a cross at Calvary, crucified for you and I, the most horrific death on display for all to see, that a testimony would be declared, a spiritual transaction took place, a body of Christ, the bride, knit to the bridegroom, Jesus, sanctifying and making holy that which was not holy, humanity through sin. It is a beautiful example for us. When God demonstrates that for all the world to see, how is it that we in our marriage, our marriages, don't think that they're on display as well? That's what he's showing us. Just as Christ also loved the church. Again, it's an attitude. It's a pattern that Jesus established for us. The husband is to lead this. Husbands, our love must be patient. I hope hope we're taking notes. Constant, committed, enduring. Because that's exactly what Christ demonstrated for his bride. It says, and he gave himself for her. Jesus' action towards the church is a pattern. This helps us define what agape love is all about. It is a self-sacrificing love. So I ask again, husbands, look at me with your eyes. How are we to love our wives? We must ask that. And God has already responded with the answer. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I want you to think, what did that involve? Glad you asked. Turn to Philippians, the next book over, chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 5. We're going to look at verses 5 through 8 in Philippians. I want you to see something here. I want you to see the humility of Jesus Christ, God. Now, I want you to reflect that into husbands and the humility he wants us to have, me to have. You know, my wife was in first service as I was preaching this message. As, I, as the Lord, I was reading the words of God. I sat there and I went, Lord, am I living these scriptures out? That's what we talked about for three hours in the car. You know, is she living these scriptures out? When's the last time, husbands and wives, you examined your marriage in light of a biblical account, in light of the word of God, the grid of scripture? Or are we Christians by name only? Do we play Christian? Do we play church? Again, I'm not trying to prick hearts here this morning. I'm not trying to browbeat. I'm simply presenting truth that God has presented to us that we all 
with good wisdom, ought to apply to our lives. The reality is, is that in the days we're living, there are far and few churches that are actually teaching the Word of God anymore. I mean, most churches you go to, they don't open the Bible, or if they do, you get a verse. And then the guy talks for an hour about some topic, and somehow it relates to the verse. And you get a biblically illiterate church, a bride, that has to be presented to Jesus after he has given everything to wash their minds with the word of God, to raise them up, to train them, to bless them. And yet, husbands, I can be guilty of the same thing in my own home if I'm not reading the word of God and washing my wife's mind. Because it begins with humility. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's the pattern, the example, and the model. Again, Philippians 2, 5. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, guys, look at this, no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, doulos in the Greek, a willing servant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being formed in appearances as a man, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death. Do you see that? Of the cross. Husbands, there are no excuses. There's no buts, if, what, maybe. No. God demonstrated what it is to give himself fully for the bride. And he's called us to do the same thing in his strength. Headship, we read about that. Men are to be the heads, the pastor of their homes. We read that in last week in chapters, or chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Headship doesn't demand. It's a simple model. More is caught than taught. Unconditional love should be modeled by the husband, even in submission, even if submission is lacking, even if submission isn't in the home. Pastor, that's good and well, but why? Why? Why should we do that as men? Why, when maybe our wives haven't been faithful, maybe our wives haven't been submissive, maybe to us, by the way, not to all men, to your own wife, to your own husband, right? But Why? And I'm just reminded of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It pretty much settles it for me every single time I get a, a gnarly idea that's from my flesh or the pit of hell. I'm quickly humbled, and I come back to Scripture, and I read what chapter 5 of Romans, verse 8 says. Because this is what Jesus Christ did for me, and this is what he did for you. He did this for us. Because maybe your wife hasn't arrived well, you know what? I haven't arrived. We look around. It's not, it's not perfect people that go to heaven. It's forgiven sinners. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us. Well, now it just got real, didn't it, guys? Wait a minute. It's about us. Now we're paying attention. Towards us. And what's it say after that? While, before, we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. 
So Christ agape us before we even came to Christ, even when we rejected him, even when we hated him. He was willing to love us unconditionally, knowing that his love and testimony would be the very thing that drew us to him. And isn't that what he's doing in marriages? When pastors of the home live godly lives with their wives and wash their minds with the word of God? Well, my wife's not saved. We got married and, you know, I got saved later. She's not saved. Okay. She doesn't want me to read the Bible. You pray for her. Your testimony is your life. Are you bitter? Do you walk around striving and clamor? Do you speak with her, to her or with her as though she's not the daughter of the living God? You're speaking to the king's daughter. Your words ought to be choice. Let me, let me make it simple for everybody here. If you went out on the street right now and you began to speak in profanity and you cursed and you were swearing and you were talking all kinds of worldly ways and looking at all kinds of worldly ways, and then you walked through this front door, came into the sanctuary, lifted holy hands and began to worship God with that same mouth that you just turned around and, you know, profanity was being de just declared, would you see a problem with the audio and video? You might even use the word hypocrite. Would you be wrong in doing so? But husbands, when we turn around and berate our wives and speak to them as unbecoming for the daughter of the living God, have we not done the very same thing? Have we not done that very same thing? Brought dishonor to God's commandments and statutes to the living God. That's what he's telling us here. So young people, listen. If you're a young girl here this morning, and the Lord should tarry, and he's going to bring a godly man in your life, find a man who loves Jesus is going to treat you as the daughter of the king. And men, if you're a little boy here this morning, young person, you treat that girl with unconditional love and watch how she has eyes for you and you alone. There's nothing more attractive, young man, to a girl than a guy that's sold out to Jesus Christ. There's nothing more sexy or attractive. You don't need to you know, in my days when I was growing up, you know, I, my hair used to go all the way back, had the leather coat on, you know, that was, hey, yo, right? Thought I was hot stuff. Face only a mother could love. And yet, God showed his mercy. Because yet I was still a sinner. Jesus Christ loved me, and he died for me. And he's done that for every believer here this morning if you'll receive him. That's what he's talking about when it's modeled. That's what it looks like, even if submission is lacking. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, please notice capital H, capital H, Jesus, 
a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Did you see you got a two for one there in the Holy Spirit? Did you see that quick change in the text? That he was talking about the wife and then he inserted Christ and the church. Did you catch that? That's important. When Jesus gave himself for the church on the cross, right, it provided us with cleansing from every sin or stain. Since the work of Jesus on the cross came to us through how? The word, the logos, right? Or we're going to see here the word rhema in the Greek is different than logos or logos. I'll explain the difference in a minute, the Greek, what he's trying to tell us here. But it came to us through the word of God, Jesus himself, and the preach word because of what God taught and the living word of God we have before us. And that's being read to you right now, the words of Jesus. We are, what, cleansed and washed, he said, by the water of the word. That's what he's talking about, his word. It's a living fountain of water. It constantly washes us and cleanses us. You know the number one antidote for anxiety and depression? The word of God. It's comforting. It draws us. It allows us to come and lay down for him. It doesn't mean we don't experience difficult days. It doesn't mean we don't experience heartache. It means we know where we're going to run because you will run in one direction. You're either going to run to Jesus or away from him. That's what he's showing us. This rhema, this preached word, right? That's, that's this idea when, he wrote, when Paul wrote about it, the Greek word rhema that he used here. It actually has more to do with the spoken word, right? It means cleansed by being under the teaching of God. That's what the rhema is. One that happens here corporately as we gather together, men and women, we're being under the word of God. Some of you, this is the first time you've sat under the word of God. Taking in 10 minutes of a service where we go line by line and verse by verse, you're like, well, this is heavy. 10 or 15 minutes, you're like, I've had enough. Some of you have been coming for years. They say going to a Calvary Chapel is like going, these are not my words, these are seminary professors. It's like going to a seminary for two to three years, just sitting under the word at Calvary Chapel because we go every jot and tittle. We go through the Hebrew, we go through the Greek. It's the word of God. But for some, let me make it simple. How many of you fasted? We do an annual church fast, so I know some of you here. You don't have to raise your hands. None of you did. I know some of you have fasted. I'm looking at you. Raise your hands, right? You fasted. How many of you had to fast because of a medical procedure? A lot of you, right? What happens if you fasted or haven't eaten for a number of days? Are you hungry? At first you are. Then what happens by day three and four? You start to lose that hunger. When I fast for a week or two every year, I do a week. I start fasting for two weeks. I'm not eating. What happens? All of a sudden, two weeks, I can go three. Three, I can go a month. A month, you know, I get weak. But, but two to three weeks, I, I'm not hungry. And then what happens the minute I put food in my mouth? By the way, what food I put in my mouth matters. I went out to a fast food joint. I'm in trouble, man, right? I'm in the bath. You, you're with me, okay? You know what I'm talking about. I'm in the bathroom, man. But, but I, I'm sick to my stomach. But if I take and break the fast, like every year when we do our fast, we break our fast. We gather together on Fridays. We break our fast together. And what do we do? We usually have a little broth, a little soup. 
there's always one guy in first service. We had a guy who did his first fast this year. He fasted for a week. He turned around. He did the broth. He did the soup. He says, I feel good. I don't feel bad at all. I mean, it was a week. I'm not really hungry, but I'd, my stomach's not bothering. I feel really good. So what's he do? Goes out and gets some ribs after. <laughs> only a guy would do this, right? Oh, come on, only a guy. Later that night, he's calling the church. What do I do? Am I in trouble? Did I mess myself up? Am I, is my stomach, is my system screwed up? No, brother. Your body is just learning what it is again to eat. It's the same thing spiritually. Some of you may have not sat under the Word of God in a while, right? And, and so to sit under the Word, you get 10 minutes and you're like, whoa! Some of you can sit an hour, like in China. You remember when Pastor Ted came a couple years ago and he was in China at the underground churches and he was talking there and he, he spoke and he said, you know, an hour and these villages, they, they come out, they risk their lives because sometimes the, the, the government will follow them to their houses because they kind of know where they're gathering. And they only have 160-watt light bulb as they gather in this kind of underground shelter area. And they'll turn around and follow them, and they'll often use their wives and children as an example of what happens when you turn against the communist nation. And they'll martyr them. or they're martyred. So they all know that this is a risk by coming out and sitting under the word. And you know what? He says, I get in that room. He says, it's packed like sardines. He says, you can't move. They're willing to risk it. They just want to hear the word of God. He says, I taught through the book of Acts. He goes, it took me, you know, I don't know, eight to ten hours. I just went straight through the book of Acts. And he thought, okay, praise the Lord. Good day. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Lord willing, he doesn't come. I'll see you tomorrow. They looked at him. <clears throat> Where are you going? I don't know how to say that in Chinese, whatever that sounds like. Where are you going? Well, gosh, it's, it's eight hours, it's, it's late, and you have to work all day tomorrow in the farms, in the fields, the rice fields. Where are you going? No, keep going. You don't understand. We risked our lives just to hear the word of God. We don't know when we're going to be able to sit under the word like this ever again. Don't ever stop. As a pastor, that's music to your ears, but after eight hours... You kind of want to take a break, right? I mean, you know, I think of Paul, you know, remember he's preaching and the guy falls out the window. He just kept going and going and going, you know. When's the last time, husbands, you read to your wife the word of God? When is the last time you washed their minds with the living water? I'm going to ask everybody an honest question. I asked first service, so don't feel bad. What happens if you don't take a shower for three days? Get a little stinky, a little smelly, right? Maybe you say something to someone like, huh, huh? What happens when you come into the church? Don't do this, please. What happens when you come into the church after three days or four days and not taking a shower? Somebody might look at you and go, hey, you want to uh, borrow my shower? I got one. I got good soap. There's a lake. There's a river. I got a pool right? Anything. You don't care. Here's Dove. Here's a bar of soap. Go at it. Because there begins to be a smell. What happens when husbands don't read their wives the word of God? You know what happens? The mind begins to stink, smell. It gets to be infected with the world and the things of the world. 
take root and it starts to grow that way and it's just not good. And all the things that are going around up there. And yet we look at our wives and go, calm down. What are you reacting that way? Calm down. I mean, the world's coming to an end. I mean, look at all the things that are going on. I mean, even in the election, everything that's going on these days. And, and, and we look at our wives and we go, why are you acting this way? What? Look at all that's going on around us. Without the word of God being read, what, what washes them and cleanses them? That's what he's talking about here. The rhema, the preached word of God, that's to go forward as a pastor of your home. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. Well, pastor, I, you do that. That's your calling. I, I don't, you know, Sundays and Wednesdays, but I don't know how to do that. You don't know how to read the words on the page? You don't trust Jesus to get, what's the Holy Spirit say? He's our teacher? You don't trust Jesus to give application and understanding? We don't got to persuade. We're not called husbands to persuade our wives to do these things. These things are all free will election choices. But we are called to be faithful to read the word of God, and not just with our wives. We'll talk about it next week in chapter 6, but with our children. It's important. There's an enemy that's trying to create disunity and division in every house. And he's more than happy. He's a coward. He's more than happy to take your children. He's more than happy to take your husbands or your wives. We need all to have the washing of the word of God. Doesn't God say in his word that his word never returns void? Isn't that a promise in the word of God? His word never returns void. Test him on it, any one of you. Well, I did. I, I gave the word and somebody didn't receive it. You know what happened? You couldn't see. It was tilling up ground. It was taking hard dirt, hard hearts, and it was tilling it up. It's getting it fertile. So the next time and the next time, till eventually that seed goes in and it takes a deep root and grows. And what? Like all fruit of the Lord, produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's exactly what we see here. But he gave himself right, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he may holy and without blemish, washing the logos, the spoken word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, beautiful. We're either going to present a clean or defiled bride, husbands, that have been placed in our charge. That's the reality. We're either going to, I've heard it said this way, after a year of marriage, your wife is either going to be blossoming or she's going to be withering. What Christ did in a moment through salvation, that salvation, lifetime sanctification takes a lifetime. The work that husbands we do in the home through unconditional love is food to the soul. It's the washing and the purifying of the word. It's what cleanses and sets your wife to a place where she can grow and blossom and flourish. And if you're single here or a widow and you're saying, well, how does this apply to me? Need I remind you who you're married to? Who is your husband, ladies? The bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Is he not doing these very things with you? 
but he's also a gentleman and he's not going to force you. Husbands, that's a good example for us as well. We're not to demand it in our homes. We're to model it. More is caught than taught. It's not through force. You know, I've, I've tried that. I've tried that. We're going to do this. Really. <laughs> Even if that happens through behavior, my heart is wrecked. It's just like Jesus said, you speak to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You can do all the right things, but if your heart's not in it, to me, it's no different in my home, in my marriage. And that goes both ways, husbands and wives. We know the difference. God bless you. We know the difference. Why? Because he's going to present himself he might present her to himself as a glorious church. If the bride's dirty, it's because we didn't wash her with the word. Not having spot or wrinkle. We're all made pure in heaven when we are joined to Jesus Christ in a way that's beyond this experience, beyond any other experience, right? It's actually our wedding ceremony when we're with Jesus. As a matter of fact, Revelation 19 says we go to what? The wedding feast of the lamb. That's what it teaches, right? You see how God has knit these things so together? The idea of husband, wife, bridegroom, the church, the bride, the bridegroom, Jesus, that we can't miss it. They're, extri- <laughs> they're closely coupled and tied, and it's purposeful. Now, guys, I know there's some of you going, but you don't understand. I, I, I counsel enough to know that happens. Husbands come in and say, but you don't understand. She doesn't listen to me. She doesn't do this. or she, You know, I, I get the whole thing. A lot of different ex- reasons, excuses, whatever you want to call them. Please notice with me that Jesus didn't turn around and make any exclusions in this. It's love, and it's unconditional, and it's not tied to emotion or feeling. It, it, it has nothing to do with that. It's a choice. You know, the world teaches you must give to get, right? Sales companies teach the give-get principle. What's the give-get? The world teaches that, right? If I give you this, what do I get in return? How many men have grown up in Christian homes where they were actually taught that modeled principle by fathers instead of teaching them what it means to unconditionally love? unconditionally give without expective reciprocation. That's what Jesus did. What did Jesus ever ask for us? But for us to what? Love him with all of our heart, our minds, our soul, and our strength. Right? And he also said, and love your neighbor likewise. Paraphrasing. Right? It's, 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 it's so coupled to this passage, so coupled to what we see here today, and yet many, for whatever reason, come to these passages and say, well, that's not what he really meant, or that's not what God desires in our marriage. And maybe walls have gone up. Maybe you're here and you've been married 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Our marriage can't, can't, no, it'll never happen in our marriage. (laughs) When has Christ ever said no to a believer that has come up and said, Lord, for 80 or 90 years, I've walked according to my principles 
And right now they're leading me to the pit of hell. But Jesus, you have offered me eternal life. If I will place my faith and trust in you, I profess you to be my God. I believe it in my heart. I profess it with my mouth. Jesus is Lord. Right? It, does Jesus go, well, it's too late. No, he never says that. What does he do? He turns around and open arms. Let's start today. Let's start right now. He gave us the example. He's the model. Isn't it the same thing in our marriages? Today, let Jesus work in your marriage, no matter what's happened, no matter the way the, the past has been. Kids are having a good time up there. No matter what's going on, right? They're just happy to be back meeting again, right? Poor kids. It's been months since they've been together, right? Do you see? He's modeled this. He's given us an example. Look at, look at verse 29. Well, before I even go to that, let me read. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In my, in my Bible, I, have, I love Lisa, my bride, clearly. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. You see that? He who loves his wife loves himself. There's no division here. There's no selfish thoughts or feelings, no room for any of that, right? Only a foolish husband. Guys, you ever hit your finger with a hammer? You're trying to hammer a nail in? Boom, blood. Okay. Kids, young people here, I'll be careful. Yeah, you hit it. Okay. You're not like, yeah, that was awesome. Let's do it again. No, you're like, uh, never again, right? This is what he's saying here. It's equivocal of hitting your finger with a hammer on purpose. That's what this is saying. This, this pastor tells us when you hurt your wife, you're hurting yourself. It's like taking your finger out and going, bam. Something's not right with you. You have a desire to do that. Something's off. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's what he just said. We all know that it's, we all know what it's like to be Loved and neglected. Only someone that has got their head in the sand can ignore the symptoms of rotting flesh. What do I mean by that? When you're not loving your wife unconditionally, she's just rotting. Just like when you don't take food and eat, and you don't eat, and you don't eat, what happens? You begin to die. These principles are true. Not only when you start to see rotting flesh, do you see it first? Or many times you can walk out of your house, maybe somebody threw something in the garbage can, chicken or something like that, it begins to, to rot. How do you know that chicken's in the garbage can that's rotting? What do you begin to do? Smell it. Stinky. Remember we talked about that already? Do we ignore the symptoms? Do we just come in for marital counseling when it's finally you know, broken? Or do we come in for marital counseling when we look at opportunities to improve our marriage centered on Jesus Christ and the Word of God? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. 
Again, he's going to take care of his own flesh. Any man in his right mind, even if it's just a sense of uh, feeding or clothing or caring for his body, he's going to do that. He knows if he doesn't, what's going to happen. If he doesn't turn around and put a jacket on, I'm from Rochester, New York, land, ice, and snow. If I don't put a uh, jacket on and I'm back in Rochester, guess what's going to happen? Especially in the middle of winter, when it gets to negative 10 sometimes, I'm going to freeze. So I'm going to put a jacket on to protect my own skin, my own flesh. If I've got enough thought for that, how much more so my wife? Is that protection and that covering there? Am I looking for opportunities for that? Is it top of mind for me? Or is it just about my feelings and needs? That's what he's saying here. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. You see, once we know this biblical fact, this idea, this unity, if we're in our right minds, I say it that way, we're going to nourish and cherish our wives. Because what? Because they're part of us, and we're one flesh. And that's what we either believe or we don't. I love this. Look at verse 29. Just as the Lord does the church. Once again, our example and model is given. Jesus and the church. The principle of oneness is dominant, right? In the relationship between Jesus and his church and between the husband and his wife. For we are members of his bodies, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He ties it back around. I speak concerning Christ. He talks about a mystical union between Jesus and the church and its relationship to marriage. For we are members of his body, of his church, of his bones. Again, Paul's bringing the analogy back full circle here, right? First, the relationship between Jesus and the church spoke to us about the husband and wife relationship. Now the marriage relationship speaks to us about the relationship between Jesus' people. It's a sort of two-for-one from the Holy Spirit. And in verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. Very important. And be joined to his wife, and two shall become one flesh, speaking of the spiritual unity. Paul quoted, what, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 here. That's what he's quoting, right? It demonstrates just as the first man and woman, by God, this design, what happened? He took the, the man, he took the rib, he went away, he came back, and he brought the woman, right? And God joined them together. It was his perfect timing and his perfect work. This is what God authors. And we see that fundamental pr uh, principle here as well. It's the idea of leaving and cleaving. Leaving the old, right, the way we were, coming and cleaving to the new, the new union of one flesh. So God is telling us, just like we read in our Christian walk, when we got saved and were born again, we're not to go back to Egypt and eat off the flesh pots or go back to the way we used to live. We're sanctified. We're holy. We're made to be set apart unto the Lord. We're not to go back like a dog to the vomit. We're not to go back to that. He's saying the same thing in a marriage, that when a husband and a wife are knit together in Christ, the husband is not to turn around and go back and look to, you know, live it up like he did when he was single. He's to be selfless, and his wife and Jesus are to take front stage. Jesus Christ first, then his wife. 
Do you even know that in raising a family? That should be demonstrated, right? The parents, husband and wife, the union, then the children. And the children need to learn that union so that they understand that's the godly principle. Otherwise, it gets corrupted. That's important. And he says... Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You know, it's, it's easy to think that Genesis 2.24 or Matthew 19.5 only speaks about marriage. That would make sense, even in the context we're here. It's only about marriage. But Christ keeps bringing it back around to himself, the bride, and the bridegroom. Why does he keep doing that? It's not only for an extrapical, you know, not only so that we have this perfect example and model, but he's doing it for us so that we would understand that it speaks about relationship. Because the covenant that we have with Christ as born-again believers is all tied to relationship. It's not tied to works. It's not tied to anything else. But because of that relationship, he wants us to see that not only does that exist, we're born and believers in Christ because of our relationship to Jesus. No different. Our relationship is the center of our marriage, the oneness, the oneness of one flesh. But if we don't see that, we'll miss it. Why does he keep bringing this back that way? Why does he keep showing us this, right? He calls it a great mystery. He says, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. He says, I want you to understand what I'm really saying here. It shows us that Jesus wants more than just the external, right? He already said that. I, I care more about your heart. He says, he says, when you speak of me with your mouth, but you what? Your heart's far from me. He, he's not interested in a surface relationship. Jesus wants us to be one with him. Did he not say that? I come and live in you. You live in me. He says, Father, I want them to have what we have, as he writes in the Gospels. That just as I am of you, Father, you are of me, and no one can see the Father unless they have seen what? Me, Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 tells us what? If you do not have... Turn in your Bibles to 1 John. Look at chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. Please underline that. That you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. It's his testimony. It's his example. It's his perfection. And that's what he's saying is demonstrated also when husbands, we example that in our marriages. We're testifying of Jesus Christ in our very marriage by how we love, agape love our wives. We become one with him in Christ, right? Jesus, in our covenant of marriage. And we become one with our wife in the covenant of of our marriage here on earth, right? With our spouse. Spurgeon, to quote Spurgeon, he says, it shows the common connection of unity and oneness in the two relationships. Unity mark you for the essence of the marriage bond. We are one with Christ who made himself one with his people. 
Did you hear that? One with his people. That's the example. That's the example of marriage. We'd be one. So what happens if husbands as the head, they're leading biblically, notice I said biblically, and they're going in this direction, and the wife has her own ideas about things that she wants to say, no, I don't, I don't agree with that, and she goes over here. Is there a unity in that? I'm sorry, there's a chasm, isn't there? There's a, there's a, there's a divide. There's offices that are given, right? That's why it's not women, you are to submit to every man. That would make no sense. Because then what would you be doing? You'd be all over the place, right? No, you have one husband, a spiritual leader of your home. Now, again, unless it's contrary to Scripture. If it's contrary to Scripture, then you're not to walk in it. If they're trying to tell you to do something that God would never ordain, no. Because just like Peter, you know, are you going to honor man or God? We have to make a choice, just like we did in the pandemic. Are you going to honor man or God? You have to make a choice in that. That's what it comes down to. Everyone has got to make that decision. But it is important, and we can't miss it, that men, if you're leading your home, pastors your home, guys, you're hearing what Christ is showing you, and your wife is walking with you. Notice it's not behind. I'm just using the illustration. Together, you're walking, and what do we call that? We're walking in unity. What did God say? How can we walk together unless we be agreed? Right? How can we walk in unity unless we be agreed? All of these principles apply. But for some reason, when it becomes to the marriage, so often it's, it's sort of dismissed or it's taken as a suggestion rather than a commandment. You see, God wants the very best for our marriage. I'll give you a personal example. I know we're at our time and we'll close here with one verse and then we'll close. Verse 33 and then we'll close. I'll share something with you personal. So my wife and I, many years, many, many years ago, we were living in Rochester, New York, upstate New York. And I remember my wife came home and we would watch uh, TV shows together, you know, certain things. And honestly, at that point, I had one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Many, many years ago, okay? And I can remember my wife... Uh, Say, hey, put on our, our TV show, something about dancing. It was, well, I can't remember what the show was, something to do with dancing. And the Lord had really been tugging at my heart that my eyes need to be affixed to my wife and not any other flesh. Like, I don't need help from the devil with that one, right? Like, like I'm, I'm, my, my flesh is strong enough in me. I don't need help from the devil to be looking at anything else I shouldn't be looking at, right? Guys, you might know what I'm talking about. I don't need help for that. I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to be set apart. So Lord, put it in my heart as this thing comes on, because these dancers, they do ballroom, and the, but they're half-dressed. I mean, they're just, you know, they don't leave anything to the imagination. So they're half-dressed. I'm like, I don't want to watch this. It's, just, it's, it's of the flesh. It's of the lust. I don't, it's not good for me. My wife's like, we've been watching this. I said, well, Lee, I don't, we're not going to watch it. That's it. Really? <laughs> I got that look. Really? And... and in fairness, again, we were both walking one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom at that time many years ago. And she says, uh, well, I don't think there's anything ungodly about it. I said, okay. I said, um, I, I just don't think it honors God. I, what I'm looking at is not helpful for me in my walk with Christ. She turns around and she says, well, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I think you're getting a little ridiculous at this point. You know, I think you're... you're, you're I think you're taking things out of context, out of scripture. I think you're getting a little bit ridiculous. And I said, Lisa, I don't know how else to say it, and I don't have the words, and I, I don't want to argue with you about this. 
I am telling you more than I have ever had in my life, a strong conviction from God that I feel like he is standing right next to me right now saying, do not do this. You have a choice. And at that moment, I, I was assuming the role of a pastor in my home probably for the first time in my life. Because every other time, it was just easier to say, okay, and I'll go off and do that. But not this time. The Lord was pressing on my heart. And I turned around and I said, Lee, I'm, I'm begging you. I'm asking you, please. I, I rarely ever do this. Please, I'm telling you. It's not honoring God. We're grieving the Holy Spirit. And she's still at this point, you know, was, we're in this, this pretty heavy discussion. I'm just going to say it that way. And she turns and she goes to say something and the TV immediately goes off. She looks at me and she says, ha ha, turn it back on. And I said, Lee, we had a flat screen TV that's on the, above a fireplace. I said, Lee, the clicker's right over there. I didn't even have the clicker. And I said, yeah, I, I joked around first service. I would have had a clapper. That would have been the perfect time. You know, I could have, I could have kept doing it, you know, but, but I didn't have anything like that, right? TV goes off. She's like, what'd you do? I said, I didn't do anything. Didn't do a thing. I said, Lisa, I really, I'm, I'm telling you, I really believe this is what the Lord's showing me. And I, and I know it sounds like I'm losing my mind, but I'm not. I'm telling you. I never say this. I don't have these experiences. This is like one in a lifetime for me. I never, it was what was happening. I said, I really believe it's the Holy Spirit showing us. He loves us. She turns around. She's like, ah, it's the outlet. It's the TV. You know, my wife, that's where. So I, I, I get the TV. I lift it off the wall. I go to another outlet. I plug it in. It still doesn't work. She's like, it's the outlets. She goes upstairs to the bedroom, grabs the hairdryer, comes back down, plugs the hairdryer, and <laughs> turns the hairdryer on. Now she's perplexed. Now she's perplexed. She's sitting back, and she's like, so what did you do to the TV? I said, I didn't do anything. I paid the bill. It's got nothing to do with this. I said, I'm telling you, Jesus died for our marriage. He died for my soul, and he died for your soul. And much is given, much is required. And I really believe God does not want us to do these things. And it's time we're all in for Christ. No more walking with the world. This goes on for about 15 minutes, 20 minutes maybe. I've never seen my wife do this. So calmly, she turns and she goes, I don't know if I've ever heard this again either, by the way. You're right. It was a moment. If I'd have had that on camcorder, I'd just play it over. No, I'm joking. She'll, she's going to, I hope she doesn't hear that part. So I didn't share that part with first service. So she turns around and she says, you're right. There was such a peace in our home at that moment. Like I have never experienced a peace that I can't explain to you that surpasses all understanding in the home. And all of a sudden, the minute she says, you're right, I thought the TV would go on. It didn't. She said, she said, we need to follow the Lord. I need to submit. And I just was like, because I could have argued with her. I could have reasoned with her. I could have tried to force the issue. And you know what? I would have been wrong to do all of those things. Because just as it is for me to come to Christ, I come free willing. Sorry about that. I come free willing. The team in the back are going to hate me for editing. I come uh, free willing like that. Well, that's how my wife and I have to come to agape love and submission. 
The minute she said that, the TV went right back on. And it didn't go on to that show. I couldn't tell you what was on. But the TV went back on, and she said, the hair on my neck is standing. You know, it was like one of those moments that we'll never forget. We've never seen something so supernatural like that happen again in our house. But it was amazing to watch that. And at that point, I turned off the TV, and I remember going upstairs, and she didn't know about that part. But I got on my knees, and I began to weep before God. Because I said, God, all the things that I've done in my marriage, the things I haven't done in my marriage, and the long-suffering of my wife, and all the times you called me to stand up and be the pastor in my home, and I didn't, and I took the easy way out, and I, I didn't want an argument, I didn't want to fight, I didn't want to do these things. And God, you showed me just how real and how much you love us, and you are in our homes and in our hearts, and from now on, you will dwell wherever we are, because we will create a situation environment where you are welcome and we never grieve your spirit ever again. And my wife and I have been reading the Bible together ever since. And we spent time and we started reading our children. We started having them come in. Even when they were little, they'd be running around and playing, but we'd read the Bible and they would hear, you know, hear it and it would take root. And God has changed our marriage and he's changed our lives. So if you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, I don't know, can the Lord do it? I'm telling you, he did. And if you look at verse 33, he brings it back around. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, so let the wife see that she respects her husband. What he does is nevertheless, Paul taught on these two things at once. He teaches about marriage, but he also teaches about God's pattern for marriage, the relationship between Jesus and his people. He said, let each one of you, that means that everyone is included. We can't say, well, he didn't mean me and there's any excuse. No. So love his wife as himself. Paul again stressed the unity that a husband must recognize and conform his thinking into God's thoughts and actions. Let the wife see. Paul called his wife to pay special attention here, or Paul called the wife, excuse me, to pay special attention that, that this may be a point where many wives might excuse themselves for one reason or another, but Paul emphasized, let the wife see. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word respect is the same word often used for reverential fear. It's used in response to Jesus when the disciples saw him in awe. It's a strong statement, but it indicates that the wife should respect the husband so highly that it points in that direction and it becomes a testimony. She becomes the beacon of light in her home. So to summarize, husbands, understand that you and your wife are one. Men, please, don't let the enemy lie to you. You and your wife are one. This is to be in love and unity. Love and unity, men. Wives, understand that unity has a head. And that's your own husband, not just any man. And that's how God designed marriage, right? The irony is that today we see spouses each wanting to fulfill each other's roles. Many times the wife wants to be the head. And the husband is more than happy to go off and get engrossed in his hobby and shirk his responsibilities and duties in the home to wash his wife with the word of God and to be the faithful one to stand in gap with Jesus Christ. 
It goes back to what we read in verse 21 at the very beginning. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Walking in wisdom for both a husband and wife. That's how it begins. The head doesn't function without the body, and the body requires a head. That's it. Both work in unity as Christ intended and is given as a pattern and a model. Not just for our marriage, but for our relationships with Jesus Christ and the model that he established since he has designed marriage. Amen. I'm going to ask us all to stand. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray for the marriages today. I'm going to pray for those that are single or widowed that are maybe the Lord has got them in relationships. Maybe they're thinking about marriage. And afterwards, if any of you are married, but there's been aspects of your marriage where you, you haven't been living this out and your, your desire is to do that, I want to invite you to come forward with your spouse and, and just just want to pray for your marriage. Just want to pray individually for your marriage. The pastors will be up here. We just want to pray for your marriage and ask God to be the center of it because you'll never have a sweeter or greater joy than when Jesus is the shepherd and the chief priest in your home. Father, we come before you. Lord, we that have ears ought to hear what the Spirit has to say. Lord, we are without excuse. We understand your design for marriage, this holy matrimony that you have designed and established. And God, we lift up marriages to you this morning. We lift up all marriages, God, not just here, but all throughout the world, God, that you will strengthen marriages, that you will be at the center, that you will have the husband to be the pastor and to to assume the responsibility and beautiful role of providing that covering for his wife, being that spiritual leader. And Lord, that wives would be the helpmates. They wouldn't stay silent, Lord, when there's things that are coming and they need to They need to warn or help their husbands. Hey, pray about this. Seek God in this. Are you sure? With all love and submission. God, it's through that perfect unity that you, Lord, are testified. That your light shines bright in a marriage. I pray for our singles and widows, Lord, that, Lord, every day have that opportunity to receive this very thing from you, Jesus. That their hearts would be open and that you would take them through their word. And God, I pray that husbands will stand in the gap and read to their wives daily. Wash their minds with the word of God. Strengthen our marriages, Lord. Heal us. In spite of our circumstances, in spite of what's going on, Lord, it's never too late for a marriage to be centered on you. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for sanctification. And thank you, Jesus, that you who have begun the good work will finish that good work in us all. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed, amen. God bless you. I agape you. And tonight we will see you at 6 p.m. for corporate prayer. God bless you all. And again, if there's any marriages that desire prayer, come on up for prayer with your spouse.